I want to turn our attention now and for the rest of our times together to David himself. We've looked at Absalom, we've looked at Saul, we've looked at these examples of this, uh, the pride of man and the way that pride exhibits its, itself, asserts itself in different ways in our lives. And I think for David, we have before us the model of a humble king. And that's the way or the lens through which I want to look at some of the events in his life. And we'll zoom in on a couple of particular moments um, in the next sessions. But today we're going to take something of an overview in this, this, this time together. Let me pray. Father, speak again. Our souls long to be changed, Lord. We don't want to hold up a guard to you or shield we want to be vulnerable under the surgeon's blade. Be prepared for your heart work, Lord. So speak now. Amen. Um, <clears throat> if you're familiar with the story of David, you know he wasn't perfect. We've already touched on the event that took place when his son Amnon raped his daughter Tamar and uh, how David didn't deal with it properly. And you'll see worse events in his life. You'll see moments when he's exposed for being a flawed human like you and I. But nevertheless, the verdict of Scripture about him is clear. That he's described before he become, comes to the throne, in Samuel's word, as a man after God's own heart. It's, a, it's an echo that we hear in the book of Acts, um, where he's described again as a man after God's own heart who will do all my will. And uh, therefore, I think, I'm interested in God's reason. Why does God love David? What is it about David that despite his flaws, he's still held up as a model for us? And I think the answer is to do with his humility. I think it's the key to understanding all the virtues that we see in David's life. And I want that to be the lens through which we understand some of the main events and the contours of his character also. Humility. Now, in some ways, I think it's surprising. I've got to say that he was a, a humble man. There were pressures on him to become proud. There were pressures from outside. You remember how the nation longed for a king, and they were given Saul, and then when David arises on the scene, they long for a leader like David. They want somebody who satisfies their desire to be, to be on the winning team. And I think that the clamor for a king, the longing for a hero, is a role into which many people like to fit. The, the hunger, the appetite's there. Here I am. I'm the answer to your, your desires and your problems. And, you know, tragically, I think we see this even within Christian circles. We see the same fundamental human um, inclination to create cults around personalities and that was beginning to happen around David's life after he slew Goliath and after he became this, this successful commander-in-chief of the army. There was this personality cult developing, and the people long for leaders. We long for models. We long for examples. We long for competent, brilliant people to lead us. And unfortunately, I think, you know, that's when it's not just the case that, that, that proud people are to blame for the way in which we draw attention to ourselves, we, we, we self-consciously can build platforms, and you see this in the Christian world, can't you? I think also we're to blame as people. 
that we long for it to some degree when we give our adulation and our admiration and our interest to distinguished leaders who, whose, uh, whose reputations are based on charisma and so on. And so I think you've got to see that dynamic going on. The people long for, they long for a person like David. And therefore the pressure is for him to present himself, the pressure, the external pressure is for him to present himself as the answer to their desires. And along with that external pressure is the internal pressure within his own soul that he had been chosen by God. Do you remember when we looked at the story of Joseph um, some time back and Joseph as a young man receives the prophetic dreams that his brothers and parents will bow down to him and it messes with him. When we first meet Joseph, we meet a young man who's full of arrogance and hubris and God has to break him. He has to dismantle him. He has to send him into the worst, most torturous positions in life in order to crush the pride so that God's word to him can be fulfilled so that God doesn't have to oppose him anymore, but can rather give grace and exalt him uh, as a humble young man. And it seems to me that David perhaps goes through a similar journey. The pressure inside was there. To hear Samuel's words to him, that you're the king, you're the future king. God's verdict that he's the man and not to give way to that, not to get messed up by it. Because when the outside pressure, the longings of people is met by your inner belief, I'm the answer. That's when divas emerge. And David could easily have emerged as a diva on the scene. But rather what we encounter here is a man whose feet remain firmly on the ground throughout his kingship. To take you just towards the end of his life, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, by the way, because this is God speaking to David and telling him, establishing with him an eternal covenant and telling him that his son will reign on the throne forever. Of course, he's speaking about not just Solomon, but his greater son, Jesus. So 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important pivotal moments in all of Scripture. God says to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. This is verse 8. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So here in the Holy of Holies, listening to God's word, God says to him, you're going to be greater than any king who's gone before you. And how does David respond? Verse 18, he says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You see, in David's response, the kind of humility that almost looks like Saul. Who am I? But it's different from Saul's humility. Saul's humility was this deep gaping insecurity because he didn't feel the trust, trusting relationship with God that David has. David's humility is genuine. It's authentic. It's real. It's liberating. It allows him to enjoy the grace of God, saying, God, you're sovereign over my life. I'm nothing, but you can do it because you're faithful to your word. That's essentially what he's saying here. He says a little bit further on in verse 21, because of your promise... And according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. 
Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. You understand, understand David? That's it, friends. He didn't think he was much, but he knew God. He knew God. And that created this true humility, this liberating humility, this happy humility. I want to ask the question then as we get into his story, what are the marks of humility in David's life? And we're going to just, we're just going to drop into various moments and I'm going to show you five. I think I could show you more, but I've chosen these five as, as markers. What are the marks of humility in David's, David's story? The first one is his authenticity, the integrity of him as a young man. When we first meet him as a shepherd, the youngest of his father's sons, there's eight boys in the family, and David is the kind of runt of the family, the one who's left out on the hillside to take care of the sheep, sleeping rough, sleeping out with the, the flocks, guiding them and leading them, providing for them. And the story is that at this point, God had already rejected Saul as king. God had said to Samuel, Saul's not the man. And I'm going to call you to anoint another man. And then God gives Samuel a directive to go to the house of Jesse. So he goes to Jesse's house and uh, he's to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. And he goes, proceeds through the sons. And he encounters Eliab first. He's the oldest boy. And this is what we read in 1 Samuel 16 verse 6. It says, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is everything, friends. We're so interested in our appearance, aren't we? We're so interested in how we present ourselves to the world. We're so interested in the image that we cultivate, in the way that people perceive us, in the way that people judge us, in the way that we are seen to be uh, competent and able and likable and all the things that make us acceptable to others. And God says, I'm not looking at any of those things. That was where it went wrong with Saul. That's where it will go wrong with Absalom. God says, I'm interested in the heart. And so as Samuel goes through the sons, he looks at seven of them and says, it's none of these guys. What's going on here? Is there anyone else? They said, well, there's David. There's David. Should we go and get him? So they bring David in. And it says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said, send and get him, for we'll not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So David's not a bad looker himself, okay? (laughs) But he's also ginger, and this is a problem. (laughs) You know, we're, we're more aware of racial insensitivities these days, and I think that gingers get overlooked in this whole conversation. 
He's ruddy, which means that he is redhead. And obviously, for that reason, he's been rejected. He's been, I say obviously, this isn't really a theological take on the issue. This is just my own uh, view on the things here. But David is the one who's overlooked. He's the runt of the family. He's the, the youngest. He's the, the, the least promising, shall we say. And, uh, and he's a ginger to boot. And so this is what happens. He, he's brought in. And clearly, Samuel sees instantly in the spirit, he's the one. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel takes the horn of oil and anoints him. Now, he doesn't become king at this point. This is a secret ceremony, a kind of promise from God, you're going to become king. Saul is still king. And David, as you'll see in the story, if you read the story, he's very loyal to Saul. He never tries to subvert Saul's authority or assert himself as king. He never does it, not even once. But he knows in his heart. He's a little bit like Mary. Do you remember that verse in the New Testament, how Mary stored these things up in her heart and the angel spoke to her? That's David. He hears the word of God and he trusts it. He doesn't need to make it happen. He doesn't need to force anything. He trusts the word of God. That's the humble response. But what I'm interested in here is the authenticity or the integrity of his soul that God saw on the inside something in this special boy on the hillside that singled him out from every other person in the nation. There's a wonderful little book called A Tale of Three Kings written by a man called Gene Edwards that tells the story of Saul and David and Absalom in a kind of poetic way. And here's how Gene Edwards describes Samuel discovering David. God had taken a house-to-house survey of the whole kingdom in search of something special. And as a result of this survey, the Lord God Almighty had found that this leather-lunged troubadour, somebody who writes and sings songs, this leather-lunged troubadour loved his Lord with a purer heart than anyone else on all the sacred soil of Israel. He loved God the most. That's it, friends. You wonder, what is it that God saw in him? And I think a couple of things stand out to me at this point in the story. One is that he's a shepherd. And one of the the great spiritual principles you see in Scripture and that's articulated by Jesus in his own teaching is that when you're faithful in small things, God will trust you with bigger things. And so being faithful in his role as a shepherd, caring for a few sheep, means that God promotes him. How different this is, by the way, from the way we seek to grab position and promotion and, ex- and recognition for leadership. We, ru- we want to short-circuit or shortcut the, the faithfulness part where you, in secret ways, in unseen ways, fulfill God's calling in your life and trust that God will promote you. And we rather short circuit that and push ourselves into the limelight. David doesn't do that. He's a shepherd and he takes his job very seriously. You'll know if you've read the story of him confronting Goliath that one of the reasons why he was not intimidated by this great bear of a man was because he had actually fought real bears and real lions in protecting the sheep. Now, why does a shepherd put his life on the line to take care of a few sheep and goats? The answer is because he's a faithful shepherd. And God saw his heart. He saw what kind of a young man he was, and he thought, that's the kind of man I need to rule my people. Someone who sacrificed himself and put himself in danger on behalf of them rather than use them 
to promote his own ends. God saw his heart. And not only did he see a shepherd boy being faithful in the small things on the hillsides, he also saw a worshiper. The book of Psalms is testament to David's songwriting, his poetic ability, his relationship with God. And we know that this was, this was developed and cultivated in all those lonely hours in the hills of Israel with the sheep, where he learned to play his instrument and began to write songs for the Lord. Songs like the psalm I read at the beginning, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Where did he get that inspiration? From lying down in green pastures and meditating upon the goodness of God. I doubt that he wrote that in the palace. I bet he wrote that on the, on the hillside. And he was cultivating this rich, deep, profound relationship with the living God as a boy in secret and in hiding. And he never has to push himself forward. God finds him. My encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is that when you are in God's sight, you don't have to do anything. God goes after you. God is looking. There's a wonderful verse in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, that tells us that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong to support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He's searching for people who in secret, hidden, unseen ways have a profound and deep relationship with him so that he can support and give grace to them and use them because he trusts such people. People whose relationship with God is not for show, is not for the appearance and not for the observation of others, but who are secretly nurturing a tender walk with the Lord, an intimate walk with the Lord in prayer and worship and adoration. And there's no question in my mind that that was lacking in Saul's life. That was, that was what was lacking in Absalom's life. But that is what David had in abundance. So that even despite all his failings, he knew God. He knew where to go. Are you that person? Are you nurturing that hidden secret godliness that is the mark of the humble? That's not for performance or for show. It's not necessarily that you have to hide it. It's, it's you. It's the real you. And it's true of you if we look at you in the secret and hidden places in your life. It's your desk or where you're working or in your bedroom, when you rise and when you watch TV or wherever you are, you're a lover of God. That's what David was. And so I want to describe it as a kind of authenticity and integrity that marked him. Here's the second thing that we see. Another marker of his humility is his courage. Now, I think that this is easily overlooked as a, a marker of humility because we tend to associate humility with weakness and timidity. That the humble people, the self-effacing people who back off from challenges because they're not worthy and they're not adequate. And of course, I think that makes sense if you don't believe in God. If God is not in the picture, then humility should be expressed as a total inadequacy and weakness. 
And courage is just bravado if there's no God. It's pride. So whenever you see someone who, is, who doesn't have a relationship with God asserting themselves as the answer to the problem in the political sphere or the business sphere or any sphere in life, you know that the root, that person's heart is proud because they believe in themselves. They have to or else they would shrink in terror at the fact that we can't control anything in this life. But that dynamic is inverted for the believer. The believer trusts in a mighty God. And therefore, even if you're aware of your weaknesses and your inadequacies and all of your shortcomings, you are able to express courage because God is bigger. Now, this is how we first encounter David in action. It's actually very soon after he's anointed king. Saul's army is set up opposite the army of the Philistines, as I mentioned earlier, with the valley in between them. And Goliath is standing before them. And in the ancient world, you didn't have to instruct your armies to fight each other. You could select a representative to fight a symbolic battle on behalf of everybody. Isn't that exactly what Christ has done on our behalf, by the way? It's one reason why Christ is the greater David. Because he fought on our behalf. He stood in our place as our champion fighting the Goliath of death and of the enemy and accomplished for us the victory that we were never able to win. Now something like that is happening here on the battlefield when Goliath stands before them. And remember, he's a giant. He's over nine foot tall. His spear has a shaft that's, that's enormous, like a man's arm. And he is an absolute beast of a man. And as the story proceeds, you see the pride of man exhibited in Goliath's words. He exhibits to us the kind of courage which is based on a kind of godless worldview. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. It's chapter 17, verse 10. He's taunting God's people. Now, how dare he? Well, the only reason why he has the courage to do that is because he believes in himself. He looks at his body and thinks, I can take any of them. And David, on the other hand, expresses a deep spiritual courage that's, that's rooted in humility and trusting God. He comes to the battle to actually deliver food to his brothers. He's not even supposed to be there. He's still the shepherd boy on the hillside. He's not part of the army at this stage. He comes to give food to his brothers. He overhears what's going on. And a deep zeal for the glory of God begins to burn in his soul. He asks, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And then he asks this, this question. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is his I am Maximus Decimus Meridius moment. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I shall have my vengeance in this time, life or the next. This is that moment. This is his freedom moment. This is the turning point of his life, actually. But... Here's the interesting thing about this. It's so easy to misread what's going on here. 
It's so easy to interpret what's going on in David's heart as an exhi exhibition of pride. And that's exactly how his older brother perceives it. We learn a bit further on in verse 28 that Eliab, the oldest brother, it says his anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. It's an interesting thing to me that whenever anybody sticks their neck up and they puts their head above the parapet to do anything for God, there will always be people who misinterpret your motives. And it can be difficult to distinguish between the, pride and the proud and the humble. It can be difficult to distinguish between a young boy who thinks he's amazing and a David who's actually just zealous for the glory of God. Because on the surface of things, they might make the same decisions and take the same actions. And Eliab misjudges. He doesn't even know his younger brother. He doesn't know the secret, intimate walk that he has with the Lord that causes this rage to burn in his soul that anyone should, should dare challenge God's people. I'd love to see more of that rage in God's people these days. Isn't, isn't the Christian world so full of cowardice? Isn't it so full of a willingness to roll over and accept whatever this world and this culture throws at us? Aren't we so concerned with our appearance? Not wanting to be misjudged. Not wanting to be regarded or misregarded as, 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 as cocky or arrogant or know-it-alls. And so we apologize all the time for the things that we believe. And we're really apologizing for God. And friends, it looks like humility, but it's not. It's an offense to God. David is a truly humble man because his zeal for God is not rooted in his own self-confidence. It's rooted in a passion for the glory of God. And that's what motivates him to take action in this moment. And so as the story proceeds and he's prepared for the battle, he's allowed to go and face Goliath, which I think is an astonishing thing. The whole, only the Holy Spirit could have ordained that Saul would even allow the contest to take place. But clearly, they're so gripped with fear, they can't see another option. They allow David to walk into the battlefield. He takes with him, as you know, nothing, no armor, just a sling and five stones. He's been practicing on the hillside. He can hit a hare from 100 meters. He knows how to use his weapon. And of course, it's another example to us of developing and cultivating faithfulness in the secret places so that when you're actually in the battle, you know what to do. That's a Christian approach to things. And here's how David confronts Goliath, verse 45. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the, 
of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That type of assurance that you're seeing there, that certainty, that confidence is humility because it's resting not on his own abilities but on the promise of God. David knew the covenant with Israel. He knew that God was for his people and that God's will cannot be thwarted. You and I can have the same confidence, by the way, because we know that Christ has said about his church that his church will conquer. He said that the gates of hell will not prevail. He has, he has made it very clear that this world is his and that he wants his people to walk and to act and to live and to preach and to speak as though that were true. And it can look like arrogance. It can look like pride, but it isn't because it's based not on your own self-assurance. It's based on the promise of God. That is humility, friends. And therefore, humility can exhibit itself as resolve, as resilience, as courage, because you know what you believe and who you believe in. Is that true of you, friend? Just trace this through. He's nurturing the secret walk with God, this authenticity I was describing. And it produces within him the kind of heart that responds in the moment in the right way, because he knows God. He knows him. Are you zealous for God's glory? Even to the point where you can disregard your own safety, your own reputation, your own comfort, because it's all about him. It's not about you. The third feature of his humility is his ability to honor others, especially those in authority. Now, this is a slightly side-left one. I think it needs to be heard, though. Honor is largely a concept that's lost in the West and uh, that will be more familiar to you, to those of you, especially who've come from an Eastern culture. My wife and I recently thoroughly enjoyed watching Physical 100 on Netflix. Has anyone seen Physical 100? Take 100 Korean athletes to compete against each other in a kind of gladiatorial setup. And uh, it was just such a fascinating insight into the Korean mindset above all. Any Koreans in the room? Just a few, wonderful. And obviously I've had a number of Korean friends over the years and you know, just such a beautiful exhibition of an honor culture. You know, these people would, were bowing to each other before they, they try and pulverize each other. <laughs> they, 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 in the moments when they, they had an opportunity to select their opponent, they would never choose someone weaker than them or if it was a man, they wouldn't choose a woman. They were always choosing someone who was roughly equal or even perhaps look stronger and more able than them as an honor thing. And so it's just an interesting thing because if you put that in the West, it would just be a bunch of bros crushing girls, wouldn't it? That's how, <laughs> that's how it would work, you know. So it's like there's no honor. It's just me. I'm going to win this and I'm going to do it by whatever means necessary. Um, I find that stuff quite interesting. But... Um, Honor is a two-edged sword, obviously. There's honor that's interested in yourself. And that's where things can shade into pride. And all of us know what that, that's about. You know, there's still an honor culture insofar as that we're interested in our own honor. Honor where, where it shades into pride and, and it is 
the, the, the desire to protect your own honor is a toxic thing in, in many regards. And, uh, you know, if we trace back, you go back to the history of the Second World War, this was one of the very interesting dynamics that historians have sought to explore between the contests, especially as it took place in the Pacific between the USA and Japan, and how the Japanese were refused, essentially, to, were not going to surrender because it, was, it, was, it would be dishonorable. Japanese um, military leaders would, would rather commit suicide than surrender. And so, of course, it escalated to that, the tragic point at which um, the Americans, you know, the logic was we have to drop nuclear bombs because nothing will cause this nation to surrender otherwise. And, of course, all the tragedy that ensued from that. But nevertheless, my point is that, that honor is a dangerous thing insofar as you're interested in your own honor. But what we're seeing here is rather an honor that's, that, that cares about the other. And this is something that you see on display in David's life in a beautiful way. After he kills Goliath and becomes this commander-in-chief of the army and becomes famous so that all the girls in Israel are singing about him, that he's killed his tens of thousands, and Saul grows jealous of him. You know how that begins to twist. And Saul begins to chase him and hound him and wants to kill him. And so David ends up on the run with just a small band of misfits. Um, you know, I sometimes feel that sense here when I'm with my church. You know, we're, we're, we're like David's Adullam's cave. If you don't know the story, go read it for yourself. There's a sense in which that is the church. We are the misfits in society. We're the odd ones out. And that's great. That's cool. That's how, we, that's how we're meant to be. And that was David with his small band of misfits. And all the time he's being chased around the country from place to place. He's in hiding. He's in the wilderness here. He's, he's run up to the north. He's gone down to the south. And Saul is pursuing him and pursuing him and pursuing him. He wants to kill him. And there is this very interesting moment in 1 Samuel chapter 24 where David is hiding in a cave. And he's gone around one side of the mountain. He's hiding in a cave. Saul comes around. And he sees a cave, and he has no idea that David is in the back of this cave with all his men. And Saul goes up to the cave to take a piss. And he stands in the entrance of the cave, and he relieves himself. And without knowing, David creeps up behind him, cuts off the corner of his robe, but doesn't kill him. Listen to what he says, 1 Samuel 24, verse 5. It says, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's, ro Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him. What an interesting reaction. His heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, his men wanted him to kill Saul in that moment. This was their opportunity to no longer be refugees on the run. He cuts off a corner of the robe and he feels terrible about it. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, King Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. You see, in David, there is such a respect for the sovereignty of God. He knows because years earlier he'd been anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel in a secret ceremony. But he also knows that God had given Saul the kingship. And he so trusts the authority of God that he is not willing to take matters into his own hands 
and kill Saul when he has the opportunity. He rather would just allow God to just do his thing. And even cutting off the corner of his robe strikes into the heart of his conscience. He feels deeply guilty about it. What is this? It is an honor for authority and ultimately for the authority of the living God. So that you refuse to take matters in your own hands because God is in charge. It's a profound respect. I think in many ways we have absolutely lost any notion of this in the Western world. The sovereignty of God, that he appoints and deposes rulers, that he is in control of the details of your life. He knows exactly where you are and where he wants you to be. And we fret and we plot and we scheme and we feel anxious about charting our course through life instead of trusting God, resting into the sovereignty of God. Have you swallowed that, that scorn for authority? And what does that say about your belief in God? Or do you honor others? Remember what the New Testament said in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. You never have to make others look bad and make yourself look good and push yourself forward. Outdo one another in showing others honor. That's the only time in the New Testament where competition is legitimated among God's people. Compete with being the most honor honoring of others. My dad used to say that you can't exercise authority unless you're under authority. And I think in many ways that's the key to understanding the people that God uses and chooses in Scripture. They're not trying to act in a rebellious or self-promoting way, and they don't dishonor the authorities that God has appointed. They're willingly submitted to those around them, and they allow God to choose and promote them in his own way. And to me, friends, that is absolutely crucial. Inside the church and outside the church, God is interested in all of the callings that he's placed on your lives. He's interested in where he wants you to be and what he's gifted you to do in this world. How you're going to bless the church and how you're going to bless the world and how you're going to impact and change the world. And my mind can't even fathom or begin to imagine all the ways in which you you in this room will begin to change the world with the decades that we have in front of us, God willing. Some of you will be in high places. Some of you will be in low places. Some of you will work in secret and in hidden ways, being a blessing to your neighbors. And some of you will, will make difference in the course of nations. But God's sovereign over it all. And in that, you must cultivate a heart of honor so that God can look upon you and say, that's the kind of person I can promote. That's the person I can use. They're not grabbing. They're not backstabbing. They're not killing. There's honor. That was David. Two more things. The fourth is his dependence. I think we see this in probably the darkest moment of David's life, which is when he's on, his hometown is sacked by the Amalekites. And they, they come, this is in First uh, Samuel chapter 30, they come and steal David's wives and his children. And uh, they kidnap them. And uh, as David arrives home to seeing his, his, uh, his home utterly ransacked and destroyed and the whole village, and he brings all his retinue, the, you know, the, 
the, the, the men who accompanied him and whose, uh, whose families also had been taken. Here's what happens. It, it says, David, and this is 1 Samuel 30, verse 4, David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Here we meet him in the depths of his heartbreak. This is, without question, the hardest moment in his life. It's one thing to suffer yourself, isn't it? It's another thing to watch those you love suffer. And to feel powerless, to feel out of control. And this really, therefore, tests his, it tests him like nothing else. You know, he can willingly put up with all the sufferings he's endured as a man, as God has pummeled him and, and shaped him and prepared him for leadership. And most of that suffering has been at the hands of Saul. And David can put up with that stuff with quite a, a lot of dignity and grace. But as soon as his loved ones are being hurt, and he can only imagine what's happening to them, he weeps until he has no more strength to weep, and everyone with him weeps, and they're utterly heartbroken, they're dejected, they're, de they're, they're cast down. It says, David was greatly distressed, verse 6, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, in soul in I can't get this right, can I? Is it Saul or Saul? Saul. Each for his sons and daughters. It's a horrible thing when people turn against you as a leader. And it can happen like that. And it happened for David then. They think, well, you're clearly not competent to lead us because look what's happened to our families. They've all been taken. And this, for me, I think is probably a window into the deepest crevices of David's heart. It's the ultimate test. What is he going to do? Not only is he grieving the loss of his family, but also he's experiencing the rejection of the few faithful people that he was leading. And if anything is going to expose your sin, it's moments like this. Sin tends to come to the surface when we're stressed, when we're anxious, when we're feeling isolated, when we're feeling stretched and tense and under pressure. And then the sinful heart attitudes and actions and desires begin to, begin to emerge. It's like pulling, it's like lifting a rock in the garden. All the little creepy crawlies are there. They're all right there under the surface. They were there the whole time, but suddenly they come to the surface. You can see it all. It's a mess. And what do we learn about him in that same verse? It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. If moments like this reveal the true you, the hardest moments in life, and if that was true for David then, then I think this line, this transition, this pivotal insight tells us why David was the man after God's own heart. Because right there in that moment, he prayed. He went to God, cast all his burdens and cares and anxieties before God. Isn't that what we're told in 1 Peter in that passage about humility? Cast all your cares and anxieties before him because he cares for you. That's what the humble do. The pride take things into their own hands. And I think for me, the simple point I want you to understand here is that there is an unbreakable connection for the believer between humility and prayer. The two things are totally inseparable. The arrogant do not pray 
And those who do not pray are arrogant. Prayerlessness is probably the fastest way to diagnose a, proud, a pride problem in your life. You may not have regarded yourself as a proud person, but if you don't pray, you're proud. Because you have not learned how weak you are and how much you need God. But the humble are dependent people. You know you can't take your next breath unless God allows it. And so deliberately and consciously and persistently, you have learned to cast yourself upon the merciful hand of, of God in prayer. It's not just a duty or a discipline. It is those things. But it's a desperate heart cry. And you know what David's doing here. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You know verses like this in Zechariah chapter 4. We're told that it's not by... I've got the wrong verse. Now here we are, chapter 4, verse 6. But my word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You're not dependent upon human strength and ability and gifting to get you through every problem. You don't first turn to your plans. You don't first turn to your friends. You don't first tend to, turn to your abilities. You turn to God. That's why God loved David and why he used David. And if you want proof of that, open the Psalms. Read the heart cry of a man whose heart is after God. Understand what it means to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Learn to pray them for yourself. Are you actively depending on God, friends? That's humility. Let me show you one last thing and then we're going to respond in worship. It is surrender. The humble surrender and submit. I want you to remember this contrast. Saul was given power. Then in his insecurity and paranoia, he frets about losing it because his entire identity is built upon his status and his, the, how people perceive him. Absalom took power. Because he saw himself as the only one capable of ruling. David never grabbed power. And when he had it, he didn't fear losing it. That's the humble person. You see this in 2 Samuel. When Absalom is, has a, announced himself as king and David immediately has to flee Jerusalem. Because remember, the people have turned to Absalom. They love Absalom. So David has actually only a small number of faithful followers at this point. He's got a few key soldiers and generals who are protecting him, his own small army. But he's an aging king on the run from his murderous son. And as he flees Jerusalem, there's this really fascinating moment where he encounters a man named Shimei. It's in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 16. And uh, Shimei begins to curse David. He sees him and he mocks him and he curses him and he, he calls out to him, calls him a man of blood, you worthless man. It's easy to knock him when he's, when he's down, isn't it? 
He didn't dare do it when David was on the throne in Jerusalem, but now that David's on the run, he's like putting the boot in. And he curses him and he says to him that the Lord has done this. The Lord's avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul and so on. And Abishai, one of David's, uh, one of David's generals, turns to, uh, turns to David in verse 9 and says, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. If I were in David's position, I might have said yes to that. That, is, that was a very tempting offer. You're on the run. Shimei dares to confront you and curse you like this. And one of your top generals says, I'll deal with him. You think, I'll turn a blind eye, but yes, you can deal with him. That's, how, that's the natural human response to this situation, isn't it? But what does David do? It says, but the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? Zeruah. This is his answer to Abishai. If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? He says a little bit further on in verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now here's David. And he's falling back into the sovereignty of God. He doesn't feel the need to protect his reputation or deal with his enemies. He rather so respects God, he thinks maybe God has called Shimei to curse me. And either that curse will come true because I deserve it, or God will turn it into a blessing because God is sovereign. Either way, I don't need to fret about this situation. God is in control. And to me, this is one of the great ways in which we see the humility at work in David's life. The proud grab and protect and defend and are so concerned with their position and their posture. They're so concerned with people's perception of them that they're easily aroused to fight. But the humble know that it's God who's in control. He elevates and he demotes. Who are we to question his will? Are you at peace, my friend, in the will of God? Are you at peace in the will of God? As I close, I want to remind you of uh, our humble king. We've been talking about, the Lord, about David and, of course, in all these stories and in all these ways, he's really a window and an insight into the heart of Christ, his greatest son, the ultimate humble king. And I want to remind you as we close of these verses that Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians 2 when he describes how though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's talking about the incarnation there. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the double humiliation of Christ. To not only become a baby, with all of the mess and the crying and the excrement and all the weakness that's involved with being frail human flesh. But then also in adulthood to choose the path of the cross, to humble himself further, the double humiliation of Christ that he voluntarily took upon himself for our sake. And it seems to me that everything that we've said about David could be said about Jesus to an infinite degree. If David was authentic and had integrity in the secret places so that God saw in him a a lover of God, isn't that also true of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
the most perfect man who ever lived. If David exhibited courage because he trusted God's word and courage was a way in which his humility was displayed to others, have you ever seen courage like that of the Lord Jesus, whose entire life was purposed for death and who set his face to go to Jerusalem and who on the way there suffered the mockery and scorn of people and was willing to suffer and to be rejected for you and I? because he trusted the promise of of, of his father. If David was honoring of those in authority, then Christ was much more so. He not only honored the will of of the father in heaven, he also honored the authorities around him. And though he was the king of all the universe, willingly submitted himself to the rulers whose whims dictated the events of his life. If David was dependent upon the Lord in prayer, then you cannot understand Christ's human life if you do not see him as one who prayed. It's what we're told in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, that he would go to desolate places and pray. The Lord Jesus, in constantly giving out and constantly being in demand by others, he found his solid ground, his sustenance and source, by being with the Father alone in prayer. And if David was surrendered and submitted to the will of God so that he could even absorb the curses of a man like Shimei and know that God can turn curses into blessing, how much more was the Lord Jesus Christ surrendered and submitted to the will of the Father, absorbing the mockery, the scorn, the spit, the whippings, the beatings, and the tortures that men inflicted upon him? because he trusted and looked to the greater prize that only the Father could give to him. His eyes were fixed upon eternity. Jesus is the greater David, and he taught us that his way is the way of humility. And therefore, for you as Christians, as individuals walking your path before God, and for us as the church of God together, our calling is humility. How is the Lord calling you to take a step lower? How is he calling you to kill your pride? Where is pride exhibiting itself in your life right now? Where are the aggravations and the inflammations like you saw inside Saul's heart? Where are the desires and the lusts for recognition and for power like you see in Absalom's heart? Kill them, friends. It's the devil's way in. He wants to twist you and thwart you and corrupt you. He wants to turn you into a shadow of yourself. He wants to turn you into Gollum. We had to bring the Lord of the Rings in at some point. (laughs) It wouldn't feel like a complete series without that. Just just one reference, please. This is what the devil wants to do to you, though. He wants to corrupt you with the power and the the success and the, the glitz that this world can offer to you. And so distort and twist the God-given gifts that you've been graced with. The devil loves to do that. He's done it millions of times before, and he'll keep doing it to the end of time. Taking God's precious, gifted children and corrupting them with his lies and his promises and his seductions and his temptations. It's what he tried to do to Jesus in the wilderness. Just bow down. I'll give you the nations of the world. Just compromise a little bit, friend, and you can have it all. 
Just surrender your convictions here and you can have what you're really after. The relationship, the job opportunity, the possessions, the position. That's pride. It's the voice of pride. And Christ says to you, look at me. I have everything. It is all mine. And I go lower. Because only what the Father gives lasts. And only what lasts and is eternal is worth having. And my way is the way of humility. It's the way of the cross. And when you come before me and you see me bleeding and pouring out my lifeblood upon the cross, pride has no place when you're on your knees and on your face before me. Kill it. And then you can receive my grace. And I'll do with you what I want. And it's my business what I do with you. Maybe I'll keep you down low. Maybe I'll raise you up high. It really doesn't matter, does it? You're his. Friend, have you offered yourself to Jesus like this? Shall we bow our heads? I'd love for the musicians to come and lead us in a response of worship. just want to leave one minute of quiet here because I think it's important in the moment for you to respond personally and individually. And I'm quite sure that for many of you, the Lord has been speaking, exposing in the gentle way that God does, never with condemnation, but with conviction. Because always the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes with hope. There's, a, there's repentance. There's change. There's renewal. There's grace available. So let me just leave a moment of quiet where you can have dealings with God and then we'll pray and respond in worship.